0: Is that the Southern Oracle? Oh, no. It's the first of the two gates you must pass through before you reach the Southern Oracle. Why? The Sphinx's eyes stay closed until someone who does not feel his own worth tries to pass by. Yeah. The Sphinxes can see straight into your heart. That laugh at the end is so maniacal, too, the dragon. It's like, that guy, I'm just a little bit worried about him. That's creepy. And then what's up with the dad cracking a raw egg into his orange juice in the morning? What is that? Has anyone ever done that before? You have, what, Paul, what is that? It was something he did back in the 70s, 80s. It was supposed to be
1: protein. It's just like healthy protein yeah, in your orange
0: juice? That's gross, by the way. Um, and then does anyone actually know what he shouts out the window to give the empress a new name? That's like the culminating moment in the movie, and you have no idea what he says, and he says like eight syllables. So I, does it, Moonfire? That's his mom's name, is Moonfire? That's awesome if it's true. I meant to look it up, I meant to Google it, but I kind of forgot, so, but I, I love that movie so much. My name is Bill, uh, welcome to our At The movie series. Uh, we only have one week left of it. If you came for the first time and you're like, why are we watching The NeverEnding Story in church, that's kind of weird. Um, we're just trying to take script, uh, spiritual truths out of popular 80s movies that are a little bit weird. Um, and this one takes the cake, by far. Uh, love it so much. Um, but the thing that I love about the NeverEnding story, it's the twist, right? It's the fact that bastian he's reading about this story the whole time. And he's seeing the heroic happen right in front of him, but, all, but he, doesn't, he doesn't see himself as a hero, but he, in the end, is the one that has to step forward into heroic moments. And I love that because I feel like that's our lives. Like, we watch so many heroes on TV and in movies. We read about heroes in books, but we never see ourselves as heroes, that we could actually step into heroic moments. My goal today is to change your mind, that you can be a hero and step into heroic moments. So what I want us to do to start up the service is something a little bit weird, Something that we don't usually do around here, but I want us to step into a small little heroic moment, right? And I want us to declare that we are heroes. So on the count of three, I want you all to say, I am a hero, all right? Awesome. You guys are with me, I can tell. One, two, three. I am a hero. I don't believe you. I will convince you. I promise you that. Um. I remember growing up. I knew exactly what I wanted to be in life, right? Most kids they want to be like firemen or policemen, save the day. Um, not me. Most kids wanted to be doctors, save lives. Nope. I knew exactly what I wanted to be in life. This was the coolest job by far. It was amazing. You know what that was? Garbage man. I loved garbage men so much. I remember when I was like four years old, I would hear the garbage man coming, and I would hear it from uh, from down the street, and I would run out to the kitchen and be like, "Mom, the garbage men are here. Can I go outside? 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 Can I go?" She's like, "Just go. Just get out of here." And I always had a rule: you can follow them to the end of the block. And so it wasn't that big of a deal. I was four, so it was like there's only a few houses till the end of the block. So I would run outside, and then I would just stand there and stare at them. They're probably like, like, oh great, the weird kid is back, staring at us. And I was a weird kid, I embraced it, I loved it. Um, And then, I mean, The Never Ending Story is my favorite movie, so of course I'm weird, right? Um, And then we moved to a new house when I was about five years old. And I remember the first time the garbage men came at my new house, and I was so pumped. I was like, yes, awesome, Like, we'll see what these new garbage men are like. Um, so I ran outside, did my thing, stared at the garbage man, got lost in the moment. Um, they thought I was weird, of course. Um, but the thing about my new house, because I knew, like, I knew my mom's rule: follow them to the end of the block, and then you have to come home. So I followed that ro- rule. No big deal, right? Well, the end of the block was a lot further. So I was gone for about an hour. And I'm only—I'm a five-year-old kid. So I get home, and my mom is freaking out. And she's like, Bill, where were you? What the heck? Like, why were you gone for so long? And I was like, Mom, what's the big deal? Like, I know the rule. Follow it to the end of the block. And she's like, you've been gone for an hour. I was like, really? An hour? Um, it's kind of like what Aaron talked about last week. Like, we know the things that we love that we're meant to do because we get lost in them. I got lost in garbage. So that was my thing. So today, I want us to step into a moment. I want us to declare that we are heroes. So, round two, I'll give you another try. On the count of three, I want you to declare, I am a hero. Ready? One, two, three. I am a hero. Nice, hey, Rob. I still don't believe you guys, though. Um, But I want to convince you of that today. So, I've been fascinated with this um, story in the scriptures my whole life, and I thought I understood what it meant. I thought that I got it. I thought I had it down. And then one of my favorite authors, he came out with a book called David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, he's not a Christian author, so it really intrigued me. I'm like, huh, okay, like, let me check this out. And I love some of his other books. And so I read it, and there were so many things that he pointed out that I never thought about. And I thought I knew everything about that story, but what I realized was I knew very little So what I want us to do is I want to open up the scriptures today to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I want us to go through the story of David and Goliath together. We're going to spend quite a bit of time there, so uh, if you have a phone, open it up on your phone, 1 Samuel 17. If you grabbed a Bible on your way in, get a Bible. I think some people have Bibles that they're passing out if you need one. Um, But 1 Samuel 17, before we get started, before we read... um, a lot of us have heard the pop culture version of the David and Goliath story. It's something that everyone knows. It's something that's in, uh, like you watch Sports Center and they talk about it all the time during March Madness. It's like a David and Goliath battle. David beats Goliath. Um, because David's an underdog, right? David's the underdog in the story. He has almost no chance to beat Goliath, but somehow he pulls it off. That's, that's everything. And so... Um, Before we even step into reading this story, I want us to understand a little bit about ancient warfare, okay? Because what Malcolm Gladwell talks about in his book is that in ancient warfare, you basically had three types of um, soldiers. You had infantry, um, hand-to-hand combat. You had cavalry, uh, guys riding on horses. And you had projectile warriors uh, for arrows and slingers. And the thing about it's kind of like uh, paper, rock, scissors, right? So, cavalry beats... Uh, or infantry beats cavalry. Calvary beats the slingers, but slingers beat infantry. That's the way it goes. Rock beats paper. So this, stepping into this context, and even um, there's there's many even like things found in history. So uh, in Levi's history of Rome, written in 9 AD, he says, A hundred slingers were recruited. These people were trained from boyhood, trained to shoot through rings of moderate circumference from a long distance. They would not merely hit the heads of their enemies, but any part of the face that they aim at. There's even stories where slingers could hit something from a distance of up to 200 yards and either injure it or kill it from 200 yards. Uh, Even in the scriptures in the book of Judges, chapter 20, verse 16, it says, among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Deadly accurate. They knew how to use this weapon. This is a weapon of war. This is not a child's toy that David is using. This is something used in war to kill someone. So stepping into that, we all of a sudden have to realize, is David actually an underdog in this story? So let's read. 1 Samuel chapter 17 starting in verse 2. Here we go. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up to the battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistine occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So they're on either on, hills on either side and there's a valley between them, so they're at a stalemate because whoever charges forward is going to be stuck in the valley and they have to go uphill and the the other army has significant advantage over that army. So they're at a stalemate. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, which was about 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out in line for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will be our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. It's no wonder, right? I mean, Saul's huge, he's massive, but what is he prepared for? He's prepared to fight infantry. I mean, he's got like 125 pounds of armor on, he's got three close-range weapons, and he wants to fight someone in hand-to-hand combat. That was his first mistake. So if we jump ahead to um, verse 32, so David sees all this go down, and then he goes up to the king, to Saul. And David says to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And then Saul replies, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. He has been a fighting man from his youth. And then David reveals how he's going to defeat Goliath to Saul. He's going to convince him. He says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear Uh, came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear would deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. You know, he says he struck it, and what he's talking about there is he's talking about striking it with a sling. Saul says to David, Okay, Okay, Go, and the Lord be with you. And then Saul still doesn't get it, so it says, Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on the sword over his tunic, and I love this next line here. It says, tried walking around. I'm sure that that's actually like a very comedic moment, because he's probably wearing this massive armor, and he's like, really, Saul? Really? Like, you think I can go out and battle like this? Like, no chance. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with the sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Because even here's the thing about this story, right? If we, if we read it as more like a fairy tale, it's like, okay, cool. Like I get it that David has faith in God, and David believes he can defeat Goliath, but how does he convince everyone else that he's worthy to go out there and battle him? Right? Like if if this if your life was in his hands and you're sending a child out to defeat the giant, it's like I don't I don't want that to happen. Like I, I'm not going to send like a junior high student to play a pickup game against LeBron James. It's like we know who's going to win that every single time. But David, he convinces them because he's like, "Look, I'm going to take a different approach and I'm going to win." And he convinces them. Because David knew who he was. David knew what he was capable of. And I, the thing that I love about the never-ending stories, I love that scene where um, the old man is talking to Atreyu, and he's talking about passing that first gate um, that shoots lasers out of its eyes, which is awesome, isn't it? And he says, the only way you can pass through that gate is if you know your true worth. You know what you're capable of. And this is David. This is what I love about David. He knows what he's capable of. And then if we continue on, Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield-bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him because Goliath was big and ugly. He said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. "'Come here,' he said, "'and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air "'and the beasts of the field.'" David said to the Philistine, "You come against me with sword and spear and javelin." And this is what I love. David's basically telling him how he's going to take him down and Goliath is too dumb to realize it. "But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword, not by spear, that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, because he is covered in armor. He moves closer, but David can run circles around him. Goliath, he has no chance of even getting close enough to David. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone, stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. And here's the crazy thing about it: is um, there's this uh, ballistic expert who said that um, that David would have been like revolving the uh, The sling at about seven revolutions per second, and when he releases it, it's going about 35 meters per second. And at a distance of 35 meters, if he hits Goliath, um, that is more than enough power to either render him unconscious or kill him. And basically at a a distance of 35 meters, David could have struck down and killed Goliath um, at the power of about a 45 millimeter handgun. This is how powerful David's weapon is. We have underestimated the power within David. And I believe today we even underestimate the power that is within us. And the other thing is we overvalue the strength of the giant. Because there's a lot of very peculiar things that actually goes on here. And when we look a little deeper, it's like, what's actually going on? So if you actually go back to verse 41, um, it says, Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. And what Malcolm Gladwell says, is, says in his book is this is really weird because infantry do not have shield bearers. Archers do. Because archers, they need both hands to, to sling their bow. But infantry doesn't. Why does Goliath need an escort to the battlefield? And then two verses down it says in verse 43, he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And this is weird because David has one stick. He has his shepherd staff. He doesn't have two. And then he's constantly saying, come here, come here, come closer. Is it possible that Goliath had trouble seeing David? Um, Some scholars actually are starting to speculate that Goliath probably more than likely had gigantism. I mean, nine feet tall, he obviously had some form of gigantism. But this isn't like Lord of the Rings, right? This isn't like some weird mythical giant creature. This is an actual real-life human being that existed in this world. So when we actually step back and we look at that, that this is actually a human being, what, like, he probably had gigantism. And the most common form of gigantism is acromegaly, right? Which is, it's a benign tumor that grows on your pituitary gland that causes uh, overproduction of the human growth hormone. And you keep growing and growing and growing. Robert Wadlow, he was the tallest man ever recorded, um... He died at 26 years old. He had acromegaly, and he was 8 feet, 11 inches tall. But one thing about acromegaly is as the tumor begins to grow, what happens is it compresses the nerves in your eyes. And so most people who have acromegaly are nearsighted and they see double. And when we look at this, we begin to realize, does Goliath have acromegaly? And is his biggest strength actually his greatest weakness? Because when we look at our own lives and we look at the giants in our lives, they are weak. Their strength, it's a smokescreen. It's an illusion. And we need to look at the power within ourselves that we are strong. Because what God is doing is he's calling us into heroic moments where we step away from just reading about it on pages and we choose to live our most heroic lives. Stepping into the life that Jesus has for us Is just that. And the thing about it is, yeah, it requires courage. And I believe that David had great courage. But I believe that it's, I I don't think that courage is found in his success. Courage is found in action. Because courage is never found in apathy. Courage is found in movement. And courage is not the absence of fear. It's the absence of self. You know, and it sounds like a contradiction, you know, like God wants us to become our most heroic selves. But then courage is the absence of self. And it's not necessarily a contradiction, it's more of a paradox, right? Jesus says, those who seek to find life will lose it, but those who lose their life will my, for my sake will find it. And so in this moment today, we have to ask ourselves, are we undervaluing our own worth? And are we overestimating the power of the giant? I believe we are, and I believe that God wants us to step into the most heroic moments. And just to get practical for a second, right, it's like, if you're looking at your own life, and let's look at some common giants that we probably all struggle with and suffer with, right, so money, that's a big one, I would say majority of us in here are probably living paycheck to paycheck, we don't have a huge savings account, uh, if you do, you're lucky, awesome for you, Um but every week, every week, it's like, you need your paycheck so that you can pay rent, you can make your car payment, you can make your credit card payments, and hope that you don't have to keep putting more money on your credit cards. And it becomes a constant source of stress and anxiety that is a giant in our lives that needs to be slayed. And you know how you slay that giant? You give your money away. Sounds like the opposite of what we should be doing, Right? Jesus in the scriptures, he approaches a rich rich young man, approaches him, he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Because Jesus isn't telling him this for God's sake. He's not even telling him this for the poor's sake. He's telling him this because this is a giant in the guy's life that is destroying him and turning him into a coward. And Jesus wants him to step into his most heroic self. Let's look at another one. Ego, that's a big giant in most people's lives. I want to be significant. I want to do something important with my life. I want to do big things. I want people to know me. I want people to pat me on the back and say, great job. Um, that's, a, that's a giant in many of our lives. And the thing that we do to destroy that giant is we serve someone that can never serve us back. We serve in a capacity where we're not putting it on social media Like, ooh, I served dinner at the homeless shelter. Click, Instagram, upload. Um, Even this is some, I I feel like what it is, is we step into moments where we become fathers and mothers to people who have no one. I'll never forget it. Uh, This was when I was living in Los Angeles a few years ago. I was at the skate park, and this kid kept getting picked on. He was smaller than everyone else, and everyone kept picking on him. And then he goes away, and then the kid who was just picking on him, his friends come over. He's like, dude, just stop picking on that kid. Um, and the kid's like, why? He's an idiot. And they're like, look, like, his dad killed himself, and his mom is in the crazy house, and he lives in the group home down the road. And that moment hit me so hard because I realized how many people are out there that have no one who loves them. How many people that are all around us in this city of Lincoln, Nebraska, need us to become our most heroic selves because they have no one? We underestimate the power within us, the power that we carry. Um, one of my favorite movies ever was uh, the movie Braveheart. Does anyone like Braveheart? <laughs> if we were doing 90s movies, my movie would have been Braveheart. Um, but I lived in Scotland for four years, so I feel like this is like a movie that just like... It's just like a part of my soul, right? Um, and every time like, uh, I, I read these words, I hear it in such a thick Scottish accent. But I lived there for four years, and I still can't do a Scottish accent. That's how bad it is. But, so I'm not going to attempt that. But uh, one of my favorite scenes is when William Wallace, he's stepping into a, a battle against the English, and they're way overmatched. And so his army starts to leave, and he's like, wait. And he says, um, where is it that? I lost it. Dang it. Okay, there it is. I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? And then someone in the crowd says, 2,000 against 10? No, we will run and we will live. And then he says, fight and you may die. Run and you may live. But dying in your bed many years from now, would you trade all the days from this day to then to come back, And tell our enemies, they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. Sorry, I didn't scream it. Freedom! I almost did, but I got scared, okay? I didn't step into that heroic moment. Goodness. And one of the things, um, I was talking to a good friend this week, and I was kind of telling him some of the insights from this book, David and Goliath. And he said something that I'm sure a lot of us sitting here today are feeling and thinking is that, doesn't that doesn't this take the magic away from the story of David and Goliath? Doesn't this make it all about David's accomplishments and not about what God is doing in human existence? And I think from a surface level, you know, it looks like that, but there's something so much more profound going on here. Because what happens is the chapter right before this is the book is called Samuel. It's not the book of David. It's the book of Samuel. Samuel was a prophet who heard directly from God. And the chapter right before this is he anoints David as the next king of Israel because that's exactly what he heard from God. So only David and Samuel know that David is going to be the next king of Israel after Saul dies. So David, in this moment, he is leaning on the fact that God is calling him king. David, you are a king. And so David is stepping into this moment as a king because God never actually tells David in the scriptures, go kill Goliath. He's making that choice himself. Because the thing about becoming our most heroic selves and stepping into that is God chooses to change us so that we can change the world. His agent for advancing his kingdom here on earth is you and it's me. One of my uh, all-time favorite stories in the scripture is when um, Jesus is walking on water and one of his crazy disciples, Peter, um, sees him, and he's like, Jesus, if that's really you, tell me to come out there and walk on water with you. And Jesus is like, okay. And so Peter's crazy, right? So he jumps out of the boat, expecting to walk on water. He's, he's an idiot, right? Like, what are you doing? And he does. He walks on water. Because it's one thing for God to walk on water, but it's another thing for a human to walk on water. And then the scriptures say that, that Peter began to see the wind and the waves, and he began to fear, and he began to sink. And so the question is, does Peter lose faith in Jesus in that moment? Or does he lose faith in himself? Because Jesus is trying to pull him into this new reality that says, I have faith in you that he's choosing to leave this earth and leave the advancement of his kingdom to his disciples. And he says, not only are you going to do things as good as I've done, you're going to do it even better. You're going to do even greater things than me. That's such a crazy, bold statement. And and lastly, the thing that I love about the never-ending story is the cheesy ending, right? Right? It's so good. It's like, it's like Bastion in that moment. The thing that defeats the nothing is he screams a name. Like, how dumb is that, really? It's like, really? That's what I've been waiting for for two and a half hours is for him to just shout out the window so he could ride the luck dragon for the rest of the movie? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, but it's, it's actually, it's a really powerful scene because here's the thing. It's not in the action. It's, it's what's going on on the inside. Because he's choosing to no longer just read about heroes on a page, but he's stepping into the heroic. And the thing that we need to realize is the, the biggest weapon that we have um, is the name that Jesus gives us, the name that we carry with us, the name of Jesus. David says, I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And so what I want us to do is I want us to step into another heroic moment together. To take another big risk together. To choose to step into our most heroic selves and live our most heroic lives. Because the world needs us. Because if we don't do something, who will? But the thing we carry with us and the thing that we can carry with us is the name of Jesus. So what I want us to do is I want us to say the name of Jesus together. Because God isn't just looking for heroes to do things in isolation. He's looking to move us from being a person to a people. A people that change the world. So what I want us to do, on the count of three, is to say the name of Jesus. Right? And maybe you're sitting there thinking, oh really, we're doing this thing again? This is cheesy. This is stupid. But I want us to step into this moment. And maybe you've never said the name Jesus without it being a swear word. But what I would say is step into this moment today and step into healing. Heal your soul. Because I know that there's giants in your life. I know that there's things that you have done, things that others have done to you, and you never wanted to live that life. You never wanted to live a coward's life. Step into that moment today as a hero. Okay? So what I want us to do is this, I want us all to stand on our feet, stand up, and on the count of three, I want us just like Bastion, right, he opens the window up, and he just screams uh, the name, I have no idea what name he said, I actually do, because someone told me in the lobby, but I had no idea until today, right, (laughs) I wanted to keep it as a joke, but then people kept telling me what he says, and... Um, but I want us to scream the name of Jesus because the name carries so much power. And even though it may seem insignificant, even though it may seem like something that's not that powerful, it is. This is the most powerful weapon we carry because Jesus came to bring hope and he became, came to bring healing to a lost and broken world. And he left that mission to us, to change us so that we can change the world. So in this moment, I want this to be a declaration that we, as Mosaic, are choosing to step into heroic, to live our most heroic lives because the world needs that. The world needs us to live our most heroic selves. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. One, grab your slings, <laughs> right? Don't, the, the giant is weak. His strength in your life is an illusion. Okay, you guys ready? One two, step into this moment, okay? Live your most heroic selves. I beg you, the world needs us. So many times, especially in the church, we can be apathetic because we can come to church on a Sunday and be fed and think that's the mission that we're supposed to be on, but the world needs us. There's people out there that have no one in their lives that love them, Okay, I'm not going to trick you guys this time. I promise. We're going to do it for real. And on the count of three, I want us to scream it. I want it to be like Bastion, arms back, and just scream with all you have. Okay? I know it feels a little awkward, it feels a little weird, but it'll be freeing. It'll bring hope and healing to your soul. So let's go. Here we go. One, two, three. Okay, round of applause. There we go. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your existence uh, in this world. We thank you that you didn't just sit in heaven and watch us from a distance, but you chose to engage humanity. You chose to come down from your throne and give all that up to become one of us, to become Emmanuel, God with us. And God, my prayer is that today we do the same. That we step into our most heroic lives because the world needs us to. That we step into your kingdom because we know that when we are bearers of your name, that we can slay giants. That there are so many people hurting in this world. There's so much poverty. There's, so, there's a water crisis. There's, there's so many things in this world that need us to step in and live our most heroic lives. So God, I pray that that declaration today of screaming your name is us stepping into that moment of saying, I want to live my most heroic self. I want to embrace hope. I want to embrace healing. I want to embrace forgiveness and grace. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we scream and we pray.